This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So at the end of August, I had a unique opportunity to attend the European Outback Forum in Austria, as I was invited by organizers at Nestlé to moderate an event that they were organizing. Now, this was a unique session that included a guided hike in the Alps around the town and a discussion centered on the core themes of which structures, innovation, incentives, models, and mindsets are necessary to enable the transition to regenerative food systems. Now, as listeners of this show already know, I've explored these concepts a lot in the past, but mainly from a farmer and a land steward perspective. Only a few times exploring the wider industry that processes, distributes, and markets the end products that most people buy. So I was curious to understand how some of the biggest food companies globally and in Europe see the concept of regenerative food systems and their roles and their responsibilities within them. Now this event included three speakers, Katia Seidenschnorr, the Sustainability Director at Nestlé, Ulrika Middelhoff, Group Sustainability Manager at Agrana, which is a large processor of food ingredients like sugar and starch, and Hans Genauer, a farmer and a Deputy Chairman at Bodenleben, which roughly translates to living soil, which is a conservation ag, consulting, and education company. Together, they represent perspectives from different sized food processing companies and the supply chain from field to final product. Now, since we knew that we wouldn't be able to record the event itself, the night before, we got together for dinner at the little town of Reith in Tirol and recorded this conversation in a cozy little restaurant. In this case, cozy also means that the old wooden benches were quite creaky, and so that's the sound in the background, which I'm not enough of a sound engineer to have removed completely. Oh well. In this conversation with the three of them, we started by talking about each of their visions for a regenerative food system, and what actions and resources they think are needed to make them a reality. I picked apart a few of the answers to get beyond the easy proposals and challenge a few of the assumptions behind them. We also go into the roadblocks and the challenges that are holding these ideas back, as well as the responsibilities that each of them and their representative companies or communities have in transforming the current food system to one that goes even beyond sustainability. I'm really glad to have had the chance to get to know each of the speakers during our event, and it gave me some valuable insights into the paradigm and the thought process behind each of these representative members of the food system that has changed so much of how we eat and experience food in recent decades. I really hope to continue to participate in conversations like this and help to shape the dialogue and priorities that these companies base their policies and their practices on. So if any of you out there would like to hear me explore any particular topic or perspective from other aspects of the food industry, you can join the conversation and make requests on our Discord community, which you can sign up to for free on our website at regenerativeskills.com. So with that said, let's go to Ulrika, Katya, and Hans. Thanks to the three of you for making time to be here and to have this discussion with me. We are covering quite a big topic today, the idea of how to create, or at least envision, a regenerative food system in Europe from a number of different perspectives. So to start us off, let's go around the circle, each introducing each other, partly so that we can identify for the listeners, everybody's voice, we know who's talking. So Ulrike, would you like to start? Of course, Ulrike Mittelhoff, I'm heading Agrana Group sustainability efforts and I'm really uh, thankful for today's invitation and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. 
Hello, my name is Katja Seinschner and I'm responsible for sustainability in Nestle for Europe. My name is Hans Gnauer. I'm a farmer. I'm making conservation agriculture. I have a farm near Vienna and I'm the vice chairman of the association Bodenleben in Austria. And that translates to living soil, correct? Yes. <laughs> Which is a, a thing that is central to the concept of regenerative food when it comes to taking care of the soil that produces it. So maybe starting with you, Hans, can you give me an idea of your vision from your perspective as a farmer, what a regenerative food system could look like? I think a regenerative food system uh, must start with a healthy soil and the soil which uh, is adapted to the climate change. We are living in a big climate change. We have uh, heavy rainfall on one side, we have hot temperatures on the other side, uh, and the soil is the system which uh, has to work in every time. Yes, And we have to improve the soil that it can be healthy and it can be uh, it, that, that the soil can produce high yields even if there is a, a hot period or if we have heavy rainfall or so and that's only possible if we have more life in the soil than we had before. So we have to improve the soil life, we have to improve the nutrition value in the soil, we have to improve the biodiversity in the soil and with that other things come true because all things we have to do to improve the soil to improve the biodiversity means, means that we use less pesticides, we use less fertilizer, we use less fuel and we use more biology. And every of these things uh, leads to less CO2 in the whole circle. I completely agree with that and I'm also thinking that with these inconsistencies in the weather like you're talking about, the soil being the thing that is consistent, that allows us to get through the changes in variables in the production model itself, what are some of the challenges that you're finding outside of actually producing a crop that could lead to a larger system for the farmer to maybe see some consistency from the market side or distribution that would make it easier for you? Uh, my vision is that when we produce our for instance, wheat or sugar beets or oilseed rape or something like that, CO2 neutral, that we can have a higher value, that we can earn a little bit more money. And if we can earn more money, more farmers will do that. That's a simple thing. If you uh, want to have more from CO2-free uh, products, you have to pay them. Then every farmer will do that. I think it's a simple thing. And to me, it's not only the money. To me, now, it is more a healthy environment, a healthy soil, a healthy groundwater, and everything around, yes? We have to improve our biodiversity in the nature. And to me, this is a, a, a very special thing that I, want to look in the, that I want to look at in the next years. I really am looking forward to coming back to this idea of the incentives that could bring about new practices or cause changes of management. But before we do that, Katya, can you tell us from your perspective in working with a very large multinational food supplier, 
what as a vision for what a regenerative food system could look like? Yes, I completely agree with, with Hans. So for us also, the, the regenerative agriculture is really centered around life and preserving life and being with nature. So rather than looking at the short-term yields and exploitation, rather uh, looking at how we can uh, improve the, uh, the health of the soil, the, uh, the water quality, the water quantity, the resilience, uh, less erosion, etc. And with that, have a um, midterm greater chance of success to provide food for a growing population. Um, and I think that's where we need uh, clearly co to collaborate because we need to change the system, we need to change habits, we need to change maybe reduce risks or, uh, or fear of, uh, of risks of change. Uh, and that's where we need to work closely with farmers because they, they know what they do and they're, they're close to it. They're at the core of everything uh, that we do. But then as well uh, work closely with uh, suppliers together because a lot we work directly with farmers in, uh, in many uh, regions in uh, worldwide, especially on uh, cocoa and coffee that's outside of Europe, obviously. But also in Europe, we work directly with some farmers on fresh milk. But the majority of our raw materials really comes from uh, suppliers. So this is why it's really important that we align with suppliers that for us, we want to support through various means, through training, through paying premiums, through the right signals to the market, that we really believe in that conservation or regenerative agriculture. And that's what we are trying to do now more and more with suppliers to say, let's work together. Yes, it's about climate, but it's as well about uh, biodiversity and water and healthy soils. So for me, it's really about this uh, collaboration and finding new models and even governments working and advocating in Brussels for the right uh, subsidies or to stop maldirected subsidies. So it's really trying to create that change from, from different angles that we look at how we can produce food from a holistic perspective, not just maximizing output with lots of chemical input, let's say, in the short term, but to look at the midterm view, at a holistic view, looking really at nature, providing us with uh, things and appreciating that. Yeah, you touched on some really big concepts there, and I'm wondering if you could give us some insight into how Nestle views the concept of a holistic health, I guess, value chain that it has some responsibility in. Yes, yeah, so clearly we have responsibility because we, we are part of the whole connected system. So everybody has their part. I think it's really important that we do everything that we can do in our means in terms of investments and signals and training and hiring agronomists and getting uh, closer as well. I think in some sense as well closer to what's really happening on the farmer's, farmer's level. Yeah, so we see clearly a huge responsibility to, to yeah, help that change move forward. And going into the relationship between Nestle and Agrana, as a food supplier that you represent through the sustainability work that you do with the company, talk to me about what a sustainable or regenerative food system looks like from your company's perspective. Yes, sure. Agrana as is a food processor in the field of fruit, starch and sugar. We're processing about 8 to 9 million tons of agricultural crops each year or agricultural raw materials actually. And for us, of course, climate change is an issue due to on the supply side. So regenerative agriculture could be a tool to make supply more climate change resilient on the one hand. And on the other hand, of course, we're 
an energy intense and emissions intense uh, company. We've calculated our first carbon footprint in 2020 and about 80% of our emissions are so-called scope 3 emissions, so coming from the up and downstream supply chain. And again, 80% of those scope 3 emissions stem from agricultural cultivation of the crops we are processing. And we've discovered that regenerative agriculture could be one of the tools to really decarbonize or to reduce our corporate carbon footprint. And I think this is given the fact that climate change on the one hand is an issue for us, for our company. And on the other hand, we as a processor are contributing to us. So regenerative agriculture would really be a very useful tool for us and so our vision would be that one day it would be the new normal if you want to call it like that in agricultural production but as Hans already said we need some incentives we need some awareness building to make everybody aware of the many benefits regarding the use of regenerative practices when it comes to climate resilience as Katya said when it comes to biodiversity when it comes to also in the end we have to make consumers aware of all those issues because in the end they have to be willing to pay that little extra premium but they will only be willing if they're aware of the facts of the impacts that production causes and I think for us it would be one solution would be to have some kind of certification for regenerative agricultural practices or crops produced according to those standards or methods but as we all know there is no real definition for it or there is a big yeah, difference in, in definition, for example, if you think of the US standards and European standards, regenerative agriculture means something differently in those countries or, yeah. It's definitely it's, a challenge, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, a challenge. big point of yeah. discussion and we'll cover that in a second, but I'm also curious how much leverage do you feel a company like Agrana has in affecting change in these tier three emissions that you're talking about. It's not something that your company is directly responsible for. And so right. really, where yeah. do you see the possibility of influence and reduction in this area? To be honest, it can only be an effort we can undertake together across the whole food supply chain, across the whole value chain. It's nothing that Agrana is going to be able to influence on its own. It definitely has to be an effort across the whole value chain. Of course, we can do, we can help in the field of awareness building with our tier one suppliers. We have about 17,000 tier one suppliers, 14,000 of those are farmers. And of course, we can do something in this field of awareness building. We're already on it. We assembled the first regenerative implementation framework for fruit, for tree and uh, bush and ground fruits. We have a wide network of agronomists consulting our contract farmers. We do soil testing. We have demonstration farms and so on and so forth. But in the end, we are covering only a very limited amount of farms. And of course, those farmers are not only supplying Agrana, but many other customers as well. So it can only 
be an industry-wide initiative to introduce regenerative practices because one company on its own or even if it's a let's say a wider initiative but nevertheless it has to be something much bigger than that to be able to really benefit or, or use the benefits to their full capacity. So let's dig into this deeper about the incentives about the let's say the controls that each of us represent and how much they can actually affect the different actors along the supply chain here to make changes and whether we should collectively be the ones who actually dictate what those changes are because I'm sure there are varying opinions on who that should come from, right? Just right now, we're in the Outback Forum. This is an ongoing discussion with many different actors in, that, that affect what we're doing, right? There's politicians, there's other industries to, to be taken into account. There's uh, students and researchers, and all of this sort of informs what we're talking about right now, but no single voice has the ultimate say in the policies that, that go out there. The law or the, let's say the cap, the common agricultural policy could incentivize certain practices as it is currently doing with the changes that came up this last year with eco schemes and such. But that isn't to say that all farmers are just going to adopt them. We've also seen a lot of difficulties in those. And what does a coalition look like and what incentives are necessary to see the type of change within the timeline that I think we can collectively agree is urgent and and needs to happen fairly quickly. We're talking about 10 years here. Does anybody want to jump in and offer? <laughs> I know that's a big question. Maybe some insights from their perspective. Let me answer a little bit. For a farmer, it takes about three to five years to adopt to a new system. Uh, in these three to five years, you make many mistakes. You have sometimes not the yield that you want to have. You have to pay some... Yeah, so, some price for the learning, for everything to learn, yes. And if we want to get more farmers to regenerative agriculture or conservation agriculture, I think on one side, we must teach them how to do it. Everything from the schools to the teaching of, please help me, Ulrike, Erwachsenenbildung. Yeah, Adult education, secondary, sure. secondary adult. or tertiary education. Okay. Yeah. Vocational training. Okay. Yeah. 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 It has to be improved. It has to become more and more. And we have to help each other. One farmer must help another, and the next farmer that another farmer don't make the same mistakes as the first. With our association, uh, Bodenleben, we do that. We make uh, a lot of videos, we make a lot of field days, workshops, and so on. We have online, a very huge online content where everybody can look at it. So that's the one side. And on the other side, in the first years, you're missing yield. You lose money. In some kind, it, it's not too much, but sometimes it could be too much. It could be more, and we have to give the farmer a perspective that he earns also the same money during these three to five years, during the new system is etablating, and we have to find on the one side maybe subsidies from Brussels or national states, and on the other side. When we want that more farmers make regenerative agriculture, uh, I think we have to pay them a little bit more for the product. Not too much, but a little bit more for the product. And I think 
that's the key perspective for, for a farmer because if he sees the neighbor becomes, for instance, 10% more, he will also do it like the neighbor and he will also get, he will do it in the same way because he wants the 10% more. No subsidy can do that. No subsidy from Brussels or even a national state can do that. The best thing is that he sees that somebody earns a little bit more than him and he also will do this in that way. And I think at the end we have to, to build up a, a system like organic farming, but not really organic farming with such a higher price. We have to, to build up a, a middle level, let's say, uh, where yeah, the consumer has to pay a little bit more for a CO2-free product. And uh, we have uh, to tell the, the consumer how it is produced, how the environment uh, is getting better with this production and so on. And uh, we have to pay the farmer a little bit more than every farmer will do that. That's my opinion. I hear those answers. I have had these discussions before. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that because, first of all, I would challenge that higher prices alone or a little bit more uh, of a profit margin is it's that easy to incentivize a farmer. First of all, let's acknowledge first that farming is an extremely broad industry mm. and no one farmer can speak for or represent the vastly different enterprises that are out there. To put things in context, your operation, how many hectares do you manage? My farm, I have about 170 hectares. I'm growing potatoes, I'm growing sugar beets, wheat, oilseed rape, also poppy seed for a small company in Austria, linum seed for instance, nice. uh, and next thing, soybeans, I have some soybeans sure. too, and some other things which I forget. <laughs> Sorry. No, but so this is really important to what we're talking about because this is a percentage of farmers, at least in Europe, that is less than a third that manages this amount of land, but it's definitely what we're talking about when we're talking about the quantity of land managed, because it's a third or less of farmers that manage more than two thirds of the farmland in Europe. So with that said, um, this is where most of the cap spending goes to these types of operations. And have you felt personally motivated to change your way of farming because of cap payments or changes in eco schemes like that? Not of, of payments or eco-schemes. My motivation is I want to adopt my farm to the climate change. Mm -hmm. I want to, to get uh, a good yield even in 30 years, even my, for my children. And that's why I want to improve my soil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the soil must be able to have a high yield even in 30, 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And that's the only thing. We... The soil this isn't our soil. We it was there before you. It, it will there be there much longer, right? <laughs> there after me, and yeah, my children should. You are the steward of that land, and this is exactly what I hear from the farmers in the network that I help to manage. Most of the people that I've worked with on the land, whether they're directly farming or they're into some other type of management, and I think this is more. And it is a little bit in contrast to what you said about just having a higher profit margin. And that if you see your neighbor doing it and getting better results, that you will also change. This isn't really what I've heard from many people who, like you, are motivated to do something more than just make money with your land, right? You didn't start conservation agriculture, as you call it, 
because it was going to get you rich quick, right? No. <laughs> so really, what do you think is actually more of, of, a, of an incentive to farmers in your situation than the money itself? Now, uh, I heard a lot of scientific things, studies and so on. I know very much about biology, biodiversity and so on. I know how the soil life should work, let's yeah. say. But before, I didn't know that all, yes. And uh, the motivation before was only to, yeah, to get a more stable yield, to, get, yeah, to have lower costs on the other side. Yeah, uh, it was an economic uh, decision in the end. And afterwards, uh, I learned all the other things too. How the biodiversity can be improved, uh, how uh, the soil can store more carbon and so on. Uh, but the first was uh, to have less work, to have less costs, and yeah, to have, uh, let's say... Uh, the work should become a little bit easier. Yeah. yeah. That was the first motivation 10, 15 years sure. ago. Sure, yeah. And back to what you were saying about how this influences other members in your community, farmers next to you, have you seen your neighbors observe you and try and imitate what you're doing? Um, a few years ago, the neighbors, they didn't know anything about it, yeah. And I did this many years ago, and they had no idea what I'm doing. Now, in the last two or three years, I can see that they are copying me. Yeah. Try um, a few fields, something. Next farmer tries something and they are discussing and they are telling, yeah, okay, it works. Let's try a little bit more. Sure. So it comes, but it takes time. It does, <laughs> yeah. And... Look, so we went pretty deep in that. I actually want to hear this from the supply side as well, because in my opinion, a lot of this common easy narrative that we can just change practices because of price incentives and other things is overly simplistic. How have you two, first, let's start with Katya, like a larger scale here from an agribusiness perspective. What are the incentives that you're seeing that actually have an impact both on the supply side and with some of the distributors or other companies that you work with? Do you see an interest in changing practices or is the industry not quite there yet? It's still just buzzwords. So we definitely want to change, just like Ulrike was saying, that I think the starting point was probably when we built our climate roadmap to see how can we decarbonize. And then this was you know, one of the ways in our roadmap, how this could happen. Now, this was all on paper. And then how do you translate the, the paper roadmap into actually real things? So what we have seen is when we work directly with farmers, and we have been working uh, on fresh milk, for example, which is a different, it's less about soil, but it's also about soil. It's more about the thane of the cows, etc. But then as well, taking a holistic view, there we could see some, we have tried different things with farmers, what works best, because each geography is different each farmer is different so we had to try a lot of things and as you say it takes a lot of time as well but we have some pilots and some some first uh, successes and now i would say it's really the question on how do we scale up so we see that with the farmers that we have worked with and what we have heard also from verbatims from farmers that they say wow actually it makes total sense 
and they saw that the previous intense agriculture didn't make sense. Once they switched and once they have gone through that dip of transition, it made total sense. And as well, I've heard similar quotes that some farmers were saying, now finally I'm ready to hand over a good farm to my kids. Mm. Before I wasn't that comfortable, but now they've modernized, they have integrated the, the soil as well, and the herd feed with the, with the cows, etc. And, and they're ready to give it uh, to the next generation. So we see some successes, but now we see uh, the question of, of scale. So how can we make it broader? How can we share that or how can this because they will not listen to farmers will not listen to us they they will listen to other farmers and they will want to see it so how could we unlock that scale so we have said we're willing to invest premiums to support the farmers in that transition we're also willing to invest into tools to share knowledge etc but in the end a lot has to come from the farmers community in some sense that there is some exchange and as well from suppliers that are saying we as well want to you know put the demand out there to the farmers that this is what we want to do and we're willing to invest, we're willing to do the communication piece, to create more demand, to collaborate, to have some alliances, as you say, because also Nestle is big, but we are only small. The farmers, they supply to many other suppliers. Yes, yeah, so I think the key challenge for us, our incentive is has come from climate. But now also we look much more holistic at nature and ensuring supply. We see the yields of climate events, etc. So more and more, I think as well internally, the narrative is to say it's not just for the climate roadmap. This is in order to ensure supply of the future. We invest into factories, capex to be able to produce more, but we should at the same time invest into raw materials so that we have raw material supply. So now it's ensuring supply question. And with that, I think we have a lot of motivation to, to get more scale. And that's what we are really trying to do and trying to f figure out how could we get this uh, collaboration bigger. Hmm. And it seems these sustainability and, and regenerative investments that are being made can very quickly be seen from a different perspective of this is securing the supply chain for the company to remain viable in the future and can definitely be attacked for that motive, right? Maybe there's not real sincerity in looking at it holistically when ultimately the consequence is the supply of the raw goods that you need to continue as a company. What is the incentive for a company like this to look at it in a holistic way and to actually care for the people beyond just their ability to create the products that generate profit? I think there's this deep responsibility as well that we feel and it's our purpose to provide food. So that's our purpose. We want to provide nutrition, we want to provide food. So I think there's this, so we talk about the license to operate as well. It's like a must have. It's just, we talk a lot uh, in our factories about safety. We want to care of, take care of our people. We want them to be, to be fine. We want to take care of the social angle. We want to take care of the, the farmers and that they have a good livelihood. Because all it's one, we're one world. We are we're all living together, and you know, there's the social angle. And I think it's really this uh, deep responsibility that our purpose is not to make money. Uh, that's just an outcome. But the purpose of the company is to provide food for the next generations to come. So when you see the uh, the drastic change, I think, it, and it's and I can see it as well with the employees, just the motivation and the uh, the change that also has um, continued over the past years and has accelerated over the past years is super motivating. The people really want to contribute, and you can see across all functions, people are 
willing to do a lot more to really embed it on the marketing stories, in getting customer partnerships, the finance to rethink what are the KPIs, can we quantify the benefit as well. So we have all the functions that are really getting on board and getting very excited because I think you see it in your daily life and in the news, mm. we, we, we all have to do something. So I think it's that deep responsibility that, that is important. I'll give you a chance to comment on that too, Ulrika, about, look, one thing that was mentioned there was nutrition. Mm. What are the main foodstuffs that Agrana produces? We talked about starches and we talked about sugars as a primary part. That kind of erodes at the idea of producing nutrition, right? Those are very optional food things. I'm not saying they're not necessary for the food system as it currently is, but when we talk about creating a regenerative food system, how does that square with let's say, non-essential foodstuffs that might be at the center of a, of a business. And I, I don't mean to put your feet to the fire here. We all have things like this to, to answer about. But maybe from your perspective, how does that square with this vision moving forward? To be very honest, that's a question I would ask myself on a daily basis. Mm. Of how are we contributing to, to nutrition and to, let's say, to a good diet for people, Agrana is an intermediate producer. So we have a B2C business in the field of sugar. So we're selling sugar to end consumers. But in the end, we are supplying the food industry with, with different products. And not only the food industry, to be very honest, because in our starch business, a huge Part of our products goes into technical applications. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. So it's not only the food industry, but um, nevertheless, I understand, yes, uh, there is a certain, um, let's say, angle that makes us question the our food system in general, our diets and what's yeah, what might go wrong. In the end, if we are talking about malnutrition and all those things happening, in the end, it's about an energy balance. And of course, the food we are, we are consuming should be good food, should be safe to consume, should have a nutritional value. So I agree, it's a question, but to be very honest, I don't have the solution. And I think it's very difficult and it's, yeah, it's for everyone to decide. And the market, to be honest, food producers produce what the market is asking for in a certain way. Certainly. Unfortunately. And we are all driven, we all have careers and sometimes we just need convenience food or fast food. Uh, but I agree that shouldn't be the standard and nevertheless also for those food categories we need certain rules and I think we're already there to talk about those rules mm. and I'm not sure about Nestle's decision on food labeling and nutritional labeling but looking at certain of your products I know you already have that and yeah. Let's, okay, let's go deeper into this labeling thing because we've talked about a desire for a definition of regenerative agriculture, one that we can agree on and perhaps use as a tool for better legislation, for incentive schemes, for investments on the part of businesses as well. There are a lot of definitions floating around. It seems like every person who talks about regenerative agriculture is under the banner of a different definition. I know from Climate Farmers, the company that I work with, 
we came up with a manifesto mostly informed by farmers in a previous conference a couple of years ago that serves as the guidance for what we call regenerative agriculture. There are different bodies trying to work on this as a certification already. It's confusing and it doesn't seem to be getting less complex. With that said, is the definition, like a single concrete def definition, likely? and useful from the perspective of, of both of your businesses. Does this give you something that you can work with and rally around and use to inform your investments? Or are you still hoping that some other entity is going to create a definition that later you can adapt to? Maybe Katya first on this one. So generally, so there's different angles that you touched now, so mm -hmm. let's see. So on the labeling, so overall we are very supportive on the labeling. We talked mm -hmm. about nutrition before, so yeah. we have been very much rolling out the Nutri-Score, this uh, traffic light system yeah. from A to, to E to signal mm -hmm. what is the uh, nutritional value. The same thing is currently being discussed broadly also on environmental labeling. And personally, I think it would help a lot to, uh, to give the transparency in a simple way to the consumer and the shopper on uh, the choice he can make in his daily life. Uh, and that's probably simpler than looking for a small certification labeling of regenerative agriculture, which probably the normal shopper is not even able to even say. So I think it's even sometimes on climate, it's a very blurry concept I and mean, people of course know about it. So I, I have my doubts that regenerative agriculture will be easily understood by the, the majority of population. So maybe a different system like a traffic light could help to simplify that. Or also when we now look at how can we communicate more broadly with consumers and explain regenerative agriculture in our brand communication, we started talking about practices because maybe that's easier to understand or to talk about the just the benefit. Not It's not about regenerative agriculture that people really understand the concept because even organic, a lot of the people know it's better. This is such an example we can go back to, right? They the failures to achieve these things of the organic labels. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. So if organic after so many years is not really understood oh. what it is, but they think it's good, at least if we could achieve that, we talk about some practices. Okay, maybe we don't need to go to cover crops or crop rotation, but if we can have a simple visual just to say this is better, Mm. And if that's already enough, so that's maybe a question. What do you think uh, of a label on the product which shows the consumer that the product is produced CO2-free? Could this help? I think yes, although with all the carbon neutrality claims you see already, there's a lot of skepticism because mm. CO2-neutral mm. is already such a big step. And it's very difficult to achieve CO2 neutral within a few years. So then you have the offsets, so then you have the greenwashing accusations. So already there, personally, or from Nestle perspective, we are refraining now from uh, brand carbon neutrality because at the moment it still implies that we would buy carbon offsets, which are outside of our supply chain. And we want to focus on the reductions we can do within our supply chain. So CO2 neutral, I think, is so ambitious that it just raises more questions than that it helps. So I'm not okay. that convinced it could help. But if we could have, like in Switzerland, there's this IP Swiss, which is also regenerative agriculture, and they just have a ladybug on the <laughs> farms and on the product. People have no idea what IP Swiss stands for, I think. But the awareness of the ladybug is, I think, 80% mm. in total Switzerland. It's massive. And they just know, oh, ladybug, that's something positive. Maybe it's biodiversity. Um, they also don't know what it means. <laughs> so maybe that could be a simplified approach. You choose a visual just to say, this is better for the future. Go ahead. Nevertheless, I, th I think it's a good idea. Actually, we need something on the consumer product. 
But in order to get there, we need some kind of B2B standards. Mm -hmm. Business to business. Business to business yep. standards to be able to claim yes. the ladybug on the final product. And this is, I think, also necessary for regenerative agriculture. We need a certain, let's say, standard what regenerative agriculture could mean. So maybe it's a list of measures each farm can pick from according to local needs. We all know that regenerative agriculture is about demand-driven farm management. And it's different everywhere because the soil is different in different farms. Okay. In but the southern parts of Europe, it's another thing than in the yeah. northern parts of Europe. Exactly. And But nevertheless, we need some kind of list to pick from to say, okay, as a farm, if you pick five of those or six of those measures, mm -hmm. you work according to our standard or our definition mm -hmm. of regenerative agriculture, and then you get the ladybug or whichever symbol it is in the end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have that, and I don't know, maybe in any case we will share after the podcast as well, because we have our internal definition yeah. of practices of regenerative agriculture. We then have different levels because you, you go you start with one thing and then you add something, just like try and then uh, you expand. So we have three different levels of farming. We are tracking that. So we have our own tool to say, okay, this farm is level one, two or three. Um, and as well, we have specifications for our suppliers to say, when we say we want to buy region ag, we mean this. So that we have that internally. I know we have already done that. It's Very good. really good. <laughs> it's really good. It's an excellent tool. Unfortunately, it's a company specific yes. tool. We need something on a much broader level, mm. on an industry level, on an on a European level, in order to because of course our suppliers cannot fill in your questionnaire, mm. fill in another customer's questionnaire, fill in the third and fourth and fifth questionnaire of own company-specific definitions. This doesn't work. So we need a much broader approach, at least a European one, to make this system work, I think. And the same on the farmer level. Of also, course. Think about yeah. the farmer and yeah, yeah, of course. Customers. Well, let's look at that right now. So with what the two of them just said about how they would like to see the industry maybe meet certain standards, check things off of a list and make this a very broadly applied concept for farmers. How does that sit with you? Would you like to have well, the industry tell you these are the standards and these are the boxes that I need to tick? <laughs> Not really, but it sounds very simple. <laughs> That's why I said it shouldn't come from the, from the food industry, but be on a... On a all the this is why this panel is so good, because I can stress test all of your ideas in real time with the person that this applies to. Uh, as you mentioned before, we have different point of views what regenerative agriculture could be. Yeah. If you go back to the US-American roots, mm -hmm. if we focus on, on, on the roots and forget some new, let's say, let's some new ways, yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, if we go back to the roots and, and say, okay, that's the standard as it was in the 1960s, 1970s in the US, and we work with that, uh, it could be a good thing, I think. Uh, because if you, as you told Ulrike, if you have five of 
10 points and you're uh, making these points, uh, you can be a regenerative farm. Could be a solution, yeah? why not? The question is who is controlling it and how it is controlled. And as you said, Katja, uh, different levels. If you have, for instance, three of 10 points, you're, let's say in the SAE questionnaire, in bronze or silver with five or gold with, let's say, eight of 10. What does it tell the consumer? at the end. The consumer needs, as you say, the ladybug, just a small symbol and he has to know what it could be, hopefully, <laughs> what it could be. For us as farmers, 10 questionnaires, who wants that? Nobody. But if we have a, a standard, for instance, yeah, all over Europe, we are from Let's say from the commission, we have a, a new standard with these eight or 10 points and you're uh, making five of them, you're a regenerative farm. Could be a solution, but every industry must say, okay, I'm accepting this standard and I'm, yeah, I'm doing it in this way. And also the farmers must accept it. And before we come to this standard, I think we have to teach the farmers how it should work. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the main question because nowadays not too many farmers know everything uh, about regenerative, agri not everything, they know nearly nothing about regenerative agriculture. That's the point. We have to teach them, we have to tell them how it could work. We have to make, let's say, exhibitions, workshops, whatever and tell them how it could work. I think that's the key point, to teach the farmers how they could work better. So I agree this sounds really good in theory, and I'm going to test you a little bit again here. Is this how you learned to manage your soil, your crops differently? By having people come to you and telling you you could get better results, and this is the information you should be using? And if that were the case, like, how would you react to that? I know what you mean. I tested everything for myself. Yeah. I made every mistake for myself. Yeah. I paid the price for it. Yeah. Uh, that's the truth. I think it's not easy, but if you tell the farmers via exhibitions, via podcasts or whatever, social media, you tell how it could work and then you motivate him, please do it on one area. Yeah. Test it. Safe Try trials, yeah. yeah. Make some trials for your own. If you have questions, please ask us. Uh, it could work. We have uh, at Bodenleben, we have about 550 members now. Some of them are asking me or another persons from our board in Bodenleben many things. We try to tell them everything what we know. We have a social media platform too where everybody can ask and we try to answer the questions. We are making pictures. We have a lot of, of videos online where everyone can have a look at it. And every farmer or every expert who is speaking in this video is telling how he made it and what mistakes he made and what mistakes another farmer has not to make, hopefully not to make. We try everything to give the farmer all information about regenerative agriculture, about no-till, about growing cover crops, about how to improve biodiversity and so on. Uh, I think now we have about 
120, 130 videos online with different speakers to different themes there. And there is a lot of things we can tell our members, but we are only 550 members. But we try to make it on a much on a, on a much higher level. Yeah. So we tried to make it, for instance, in the German-speaking countries, yeah. with a new exhibition we created. It is called Soil Evolution, and we hope that we have next year a few thousand visitors at the exhibition. And yeah, so it, it has to continue. So this sounds much more like the stories of the farmers that I work with and that I communicate with is that rather than having some representative from a university or from, let's say, the local municipality come and tell them, you should be doing this, this is what you could do. It is much more likely and much more receptive for most people to learn from their peers, to have some ideas planted, maybe given some tools, some resources, and then they figure it out themselves. As far as I know from the demographics of farmers that I've worked with and being one myself, we like to figure stuff out ourselves with real trials out in the field and see the results before making big changes. So that really fits much more with the narrative that I have seen play out. Now, I'm curious too from the food supply sector, what are the actions, the investments that you have actually started to see real results, positive results from? I know this is still the early days of working towards regenerative food supply systems, but where are you starting to see hope that investment in certain areas can actually result in really the objectives that we're talking about right now. Ulrika first. Yeah, to be very honest, we're still in the face of pilot project mm. after pilot project. And to be honest, we're not uh, yet there to really have to see some results because as we said, uh, implementing regenerative agriculture takes several years. And what we also see is that we're still missing tools to really measure, first of all, statues and then progress. And for us, it's also about methodology of measurement and we should agree on something. And to be very honest, even the scientific basis is not yet there for tool suppliers to create something that really, when we think about carbon sequestration, and there are still some open questions, I think, that have to be resolved before we can really do certain things on a wider and a broader basis. And I think what we are currently doing and seeing, or what who we're working with, is people with intrinsic motivation, like Hans. Hans is a good example. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and uh, and we are still, in many cases, we are still missing the convenience arguments to really do it on a broader basis hmm. because because certain things are not yet there like methodology and tools to be very honest I think on a if we really want to succeed we have to have some standards as I said and we have to have it in some form regulated in, in on either national level or ideally European level at the very smallest, let's say. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And Katia, from your side, what are the, the elements here that you've seen result in something positive that gives you hope that this is possible? 
So if I come back to the to the climate, which was the entry point for for regenerative agriculture, mm-hmm. so there we are. We have been working over the past years a lot on quantifying the benefits, what's our carbon footprint, etc. So overall, and there's not just the the farming, but there's also other other elements. But overall, we are now. So what we reported for last year is that we have left carbon peak behind us. So despite our growth, we have reduced our emissions versus 2018. We estimate. I don't know where this will go, but we estimate that by the end of the year, we should be landing at minus 12% emissions versus 2018, despite our growth, so quite a lot. Now, this comes as well from cocoa and coffee farming, where since 10 years, we've had our cocoa plan and our coffee plan, planting shade trees and pruning cocoa trees for bigger productivity and less emissions, etc. We're restoring peatlands, we have our waters business, which is very active, so there's lots of different elements. But as well, the regenerative agriculture in the broader sense, so both on the soil but also with milk, we see that uh, that we, we have some emissions also approved by audit, etc. So it's all checked. It's not just a, a number finger in the nose, but it's really something that has been audited. So we have seen reductions also in double-digit areas in different milk farms where we could do different activities. If you want to dive in, I can share the different practices. But we have seen results on, on our milk farms in different countries, in Spain, in the UK, in France, in Switzerland. In Switzerland, actually, we have a very interesting partnership as well, both with the government, with our competitor. And there we have, and we got some government funds as well to really drive these milk climate farms. So that's quite exciting. And concerning the soil, because I think we talk also a lot about the uh, the soil, in France we have a project called Living Soils, which we do since 2018, so now it's four years. We work there with an NGO together, and as well there we see we see some emission reductions, but as well we get feedback from the health of the soil, we get farmers' input, and the UK as well we get some input that uh, there's less floods, so they see actually also because of the regenerative agriculture that there's less flooding because you have the roots mm. and you have more mm. you have less water erosion, so we get some tangible things coming back from farmers, which is super exciting. So we are we're currently both working on getting some quantitative data that we can as well sh- share externally, that it doesn't remain anecdotes, but mm-hmm. really something tangible mm. for uh, for some impact. But as well, I think it's, uh, for me, it's the most rewarding thing and the most credible thing when a farmer tells me, this works much better. I'm much better off. And yeah, being happy about having made that uh, change. And as well, thinking about why not everybody is doing it. It's so mm-hmm. obvious why not to do it. Interesting. All right, we're going to start to wrap this up with a couple of rapid-fire questions. I want short answers to these and hearing from the others how our perspectives maybe have similar aspects and contrast in some ways. So the first one is, if you could change one thing about the external factors or pressures that you are under, either as a company or as a farmer yourself, what would you change to make your work towards these goals easier? Starting with Hans. That's a good question. <laughs> the weather. <laughs> but that's not possible. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, please ask the others first. Okay, we'll come back I have to, to you, to think. All right. <laughs> I would try to implant Hans' intrinsic motivation into each of our uh, farmers. <laughs> because I think it, it starts there. Sure. As you as you said, um, I think this is this is very important. And then another important issue is regulation. I think. Okay. At the end. Yeah. All right. 
External factors, Katya, what would you change if you could? Government subsidies. Mm -hmm. In exactly. what way? There's billions of uh, subsidies, and some of these subsidies are really not making sense. Mm -hmm. But they are so stuck in kind of the past because nobody wants to lose something. Mm. Yeah. But if there could be some redirection that nobody feels somebody's losing or that the farmer's losing something, but it's actually just reusing subsidies mm -hmm. towards exactly. those practices, I think that would be a huge lever. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. Because my opinion is, my idea is, if you if you have subsidies, for instance, for regenerative agriculture, uh, you have a lot of rules around it, mm -hmm. and it must be controlled, and it must be checked, and every farmer wants to fulfill it, or tries to fulfill it, and uh, sometimes such things get over-regulated. Mm -hmm. In some cases, if you make subsidies to a thing, uh, it's not good for it. Uh, my idea is maybe we forget all subsidies and let the market flow as it flows. Hmm. Sometimes it's better, yeah. I think. I definitely heard that argument from the farm side as well, that the subsidies are incentivizing practices and directions of production that are not in the interest of farmers and that mm. kind of keep bad businesses afloat. Mm. It's interesting. I don't know if taking it away entirely. There's definitely pushback on that side too. Yeah. Uh, on one side, there's a how should I say? Let's say it. Sorry. If you want to get one thing dead, yeah, just make a subsidy for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard that too. Yeah. The quickest way to kill something is to <laughs> is to create a subsidy for it. Sure. Okay. So let's go to the second round of quick questions. Hans, I'm going to put your feet to the fire again. Okay, now we just looked outside of our own businesses or industries to what we would change. What do you think needs to be changed either on your farm specifically or in the farming industry itself to start to move towards a regenerative food system? On my farm, I hope I'm on a good way to change in the agricultural system. I think we uh, must go back to the schools. We have to learn the children how regenerative agriculture can help us, how it can improve our soils, how it can make sustainable yields for the next 50 years. I think we have to go to the schools and teach our children how regenerative agriculture could work and could help us. So you're saying you're willing to have a kindergarten at your farm <laughs> Maybe <laughs> where they work the Maybe. fields with you and take soil samples. I like it. I'm into that. Katia, what about within your own company that you, you're just speaking for, obviously? What do you think is an internal change that needs to be made in order to, to reach these goals? We're doing already so much. It just needs to be faster. <laughs> I don't know what else I would change. But I think one thing we're discussing now internally is to have more resources to help the farmers or suppliers to really help that knowledge exchange, basically. Mm -hmm. I think that can help. I think on the financial part, we're willing to invest and we have made commitments and there's huge drive and commitment. So I think all of that is fine. But the question is really, how do you get it to the ground to get it to the scale? And that's where I think we need resources, so both from suppliers, but as well. And we are doing that and we're going to do much more, that we have more agronomists that can help the farmers to help each other. Because we don't want to, we don't want to teach anyone, as we discussed before, but at least to try to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. Okay. I feel like that's a second vote for education. Right? Mm -hmm. Ulrika? 
Yeah, pace is an issue and uh, resources are an issue. I think what we've heard is all true and I would fully agree to that. What I would like to add to it is what we need or what Agrana could do is try to include more peers, companies of the same size, of the same industry, processors of agricultural raw materials to really make them aware. There are many companies that are, at least in Austria, that are not, for example, exposed to European regulation, reporting regulations and so on. They are not stock market listed and things like that. So they are not there yet. They are not that exposed to all those issues yet. And what we should maybe do to really build a bigger coalition is to get them into the boat and, and train them and make them aware of all those things that are that are an issue for us as an industry. So education and communication to the mm-hmm. outside seems to be a common theme mm-hmm. here. Maybe the last question, if there was one thing that you wished the consumer base, your either your customers, in your case, Ulrika, the other businesses that you work with, mm-hmm. or Hans, maybe to the direct consumer, the people who are actually eating the food that you produce, what is something you wish they knew that could perhaps change the value that is put on this different way of producing, this different way of operating in business? To be honest, it's all about consumer education and you should be aware of what you're eating and people... But I think the information is there. So it's again a bit like maybe the intrinsic motivation to know more about the food you're eating is missing in 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 some cases i think uh, we all use the internet we all google aspects and so on and i think there is a lot of information already available and i think we should all care more about what we're eating fair enough katya i would say retailers have a huge power as well to communicate to shoppers and to because they are also asking for a lot of fruits and vegetables and they're buying a lot and they're close to the consumer because the consumer, the shopper, has a few seconds to make their choice but the retailer could think as well, influence quite a lot. Okay, and Hans? When I talk to to friends, they are not from an agricultural, uh, they're not from a farm or have have nothing to do with agriculture and I'm explaining them how I'm producing something and how I'm doing something, uh, I can see that they are very surprised how I make it and when I'm telling them this could be done in a CO2-3 way um, will you buy it? Yes, I would buy it, they tell it. They, tell it, they are telling to me. But uh, at the end, if you look at um, what is sold in a supermarket, if you look at the organic march in a, in a supermarket, I think 10% are sold in organic and if you ask the customers, I think 30 or 40% are telling they are buying organic things, but only 10% do. Yeah. It's a little bit different. But when all farmers can talk to their neighbors, which are not have nothing to do with agriculture or, so, or with everything around them, they're talking to them via social media or directly, I think this could be a way to show the consumer how a good thing of goods sorry how how agriculture can work in a good way this could be a solution but yeah 
takes a lot of farmers and it takes a lot of time and it's not easy to tell how it how the products are produced it takes a lot of time for instance with a friend of mine i've talked half an hour and afterwards she understand what i'm doing <laughs> but it was only one friend of me <laughs> yeah it can be difficult to communicate these things I think that's a good place to put a little pause on this. We've actually got a much longer discussion waiting for us tomorrow early morning. So maybe we'll take a break here and <laughs> have time to recoup before we go on a hike. But thank you all so much for sharing your perspectives, those of your industries, and giving us something to think about from the perspective that we often don't hear of the players in the industry when we're talking about regenerative food system. So again, thank you so much for making time. Thanks, thank Oliver. Thank you. Thanks once again to Katya, Ulrika, and Hans. And a special thank you to Katarina and Marcella, the organizers who helped to get me out to Austria for this event. I also want to give a special mention to my good friend Marina, who recommended me for this event and also has started a company which organizes participatory events in which feature farmers at the center of discussions about food and agricultural policy in Europe, which is just so important in this moment. You can find out more about her work at eventorylab.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Thank you.